Hey there. How are you doing? Lovely to see you. Have, have you lost weight? You're looking good. So, what have we got in store for you? Well, we've got the final part of our George Lois interview. I hope you've enjoyed this little series. I certainly have. And we've got some more legends coming up. The next podcast is a School of Communication Arts special featuring an interview with the lovely Tim Layton from new sponsor agency Jack Martin. And he'll be sharing an episode with Sir John Hegarty, so don't miss that one. But before all that, I'm going to kick off this episode by telling you about three industry podcasts that I listen to. It's good to share the love, you see, and maybe they'll share the love right back. That would be nice. So, here's my industry podcast guide. You know, this podcast isn't the only awesome industry podcast out there, although it's obviously the very finest one there is. So here's what I listen to when I'm sticking my face in a stranger's armpit in the underground, or pounding away in a running machine, or killing time at an airport departure lounge. You can click on a link on screen during these uh, reviews to visit the podcast pages, and you'll find a link to the podcasts on the blog as well. First up... We've got the advertising show with Brad Forsyth and Ray Shillings. This is a good old proper radio show sponsored by Advertising Edge, and it's been running since 2001. Obviously, it's an American show. It majors on stateside news and opinion, but they usually include a European report with Jeremy Kent, and they get some really top guests on the show. In fact, they also did a series of George Lois interviews a couple of months back. That man gets everywhere. Next up, the Digital Marketing Podcast with Kieran Rogers and Daniel Rolls. This podcast is sponsored by Target Internet, and they're a lot more disciplined in releasing regular episodes than I ever am. They're also very practical and informative. I always find I learn something from their shows, and I usually keep a notepad with me to jot down the websites they mention in conversation. If you want to sound knowledgeable, it's worth listening regularly and then passing off their thinking as your own in a meeting. It's a sure way to impress people. And lastly, we've got Six Pixels of Separation with Mitch Joel. So that's one podcast from the States, one from the UK, and now we've got one from Canada. Mitch Joel is one hell of a smart cookie. He regularly Skypes authors and industry types and puts them through their paces. And I really mean he puts them through their paces. He often asks them some pretty tough questions and he openly disagrees with them. So... There's some industry serious ear candy for you, and all the ammunition to sound like a cutting-edge smartass in your next meeting. Now, for the moment you've all been waiting for, the concluding episode of our interview with George Lois. High five! If you were your young self again today, looking at the industry, would you be drawn towards it in the same way? I, yeah, well, I don't. I am who I am, you know. Popeye the Sailor Man. I am who I am. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I want my finger in 
everything, not because you, not because because of, because of the thrill of the idea, mm. you know. I mean, when I was at, when I was at PKL, uh, PKL, when I was at CBS, when I was 21, just back from Korea, um, uh, the uh, I did it. You know, the second, third thing I did was uh, there was a thing called a sixty-four thousand dollar question back then, and I was considered a lot of money. And there was a priest, a priest that was on it until he, he and he he had one thirty-two thousand. And uh, people, the movies would close down on those nights because they knew people wouldn't go to movies because people were gonna, I swear. Yeah. And uh, and uh, and uh, I didn't add who uh, is he gonna. He, uh, will he go for the sixty-four thousand dollars? Mm. And what you do with that, and you put body cop, and you put the times and the, the logos and everything. And what I did, gave it to the production guy late one night, and he said, "That can't be the ad. I, I just did the ad, the picture, and they said, will he go for the sixty-four thousand dollars? That's the whole ad." Mm. He said, "You can't, George. Where's the logos? Where's all the cut? Where's all the cut?" So no, that's it. Head side. It, it was a, you can't do that. I said, no, that's a great ad. He's just a production guy. Mm. It was like 11, 10 o'clock at night. I make him do it. And the next morning, Bill Gold comes in and he says, what? And he walks into the production guy. He said, and what the fuck? What happened? He says, he goes, <laughs> no, I was down the hallway, and everybody knew that was me. Yeah. And he comes in and said, George, what is this? I said, I couldn't help it, it's a great ad. George, you can't, Jesus Christ. Somebody came, his secretary came in, there were secretaries, but Bill, Dr. Uh, Dr. Stanton's calling you, you know, the professor. He said, oh boy, oh boy. He said, oh boy, he said, like, look what you did. And he, come, and he comes back 10 minutes later, he says, well, Dr. Stan got five phone calls so far this morning telling him from, from important people around the country, telling him how great that thought that age is, that, that, that we have such confidence that in the show that you can just put that line down. Uh, and I said, and I looked at him, and he said, "Anyway, I told him I did it, so kiss my ass." <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But I mean, I was doing stuff like that because I can't help it. It's uh, what a great edge, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? You know, and, you know, and, and you, you want to get, you want to, you want to, you want to run the, a great edge or do great things. And I, I think I've written. I said, I've. I've I, I, I've lied and cheated and what do you call it, do anything to get a, to have, to have a great ad run, you know. I mean, I, any which way it runs, I just want the son of a bitch to run, you know. Yeah. So you're still, you, you turned 80 this year, is that right? I was 80 in, the, in June. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you're still producing ads now, that's... Uh, I'm still playing basketball. <laughs> you are? My goodness. Yeah, with, with young guys, I mean, with, with, with real ball players, you know. <laughs> well, what, in that uh, more than 60 years that you've been producing ads and, and, uh, and, and working on pieces of communication, what's the one thing that you're most proud of in that time? 
I think, uh, I mean, people say, how about it? Uh, I, I want my MTV, yeah. Uh, ESPN was dead in the water. It was, was, uh, was uh, considered a Mickey Mouse sports network. I, in two weeks, I made them a, 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 a um, uh, Tommy, I made Tommy Hilfiger famous with one ad, mm. one ad, yeah, one ad. He was, and a week later he was on a Johnny Carson show. Um, you know, I think a lot of the Esquire covers, I think, are kind of really important yeah. things I did in my life. Uh, you know, again, like the Esquire covers. Uh, the, the reason Howell Hayes came to me. To, he called me up to come talk to me. I thought he was trying to get advertising mm. for his magazine, 62. He said, he, said uh, he was reading about this art director. I mean, when we did PKL, it was the first time there was an ad agency with an art director in mm. power. Yeah. First time, first ad agency where the art director was in power, was a power. It, in, in all of those creative agencies that came about, they made three times the money those years because of the power situation. All of a sudden, you're not a guy sitting there waiting for a copy. Um, and uh, what was I talking about? I lost my track. I lost my track. I forgot what I was talking about. about. The Esquire covers. And yeah, and, uh, and uh, um, so he came to me and he said, out of nowhere, can you help me figure out how to do better ads, better, better uh, front covers? Because I was an art director yeah. of an agency, you know, yeah. getting a lot of publicity. Yeah, how did you do? Well, how do you do them now? Well, you know, uh, we spent, all of us get together, you know, the, the, the art department, four people in the art department, we're all together, and we decide, we have an hour's discussion, we decide which is the is the, the story that we're gonna, that we think should be the cover. Mm. So, yeah, and then we all go back, come back with ideas, and maybe we, there's three or four, and we like it, and we comp them up, and I said, oh my God, group grope. Is what I mean, I said, group, Group fucking grope. Mm. Well, how would you do it? I said, obviously nobody there knows how to do them, because otherwise they'd be coming in and saying, yeah. "Hello." <laughs> so you got to go outside. He's like, you mean freelance? I said, yeah. How could anybody possibly understand my magazine? I said, what are you talking? I'm in advertising. I don't know anything about a product. The guy comes in and talks to me, and half an hour later, an hour later, I know more than he knows about his product because I know how to fix it. Yeah. What do you mean? I don't, what do you mean, your magazine? I can. He said, he said, well, who could do it? So I started giving him some names, maybe. He said, hey, pal, do me a favor, some Southern accent. Do me a favor. Do me just one cover because I don't know what the hell you're talking about. So I did, I did him a cover, and it was... They, they sold, they, they, they reprinted, they, they were the biggest success they ever had in their lives. And, uh, and, I saw, and he said, you gotta keep doing my covers, and I kept doing the covers, you know. I, I didn't realize it when I did that first cover. They were deep in the red, deep in the red. Some of the editors were, tell, were telling me they didn't expect paychecks that, that month. Wow. 
and somehow the, the thing came out, and you know, I, I called a, I called a fight on my first cover, yeah. you know, and every, when it first came out, everybody said right, it ridiculous, and a week later the fight, and a week later Liston knocks out fucking head, Patterson, and he was a ten to one underdog, eight to one underdog, and all of a sudden everybody said, wow, what a magazine, you know, a genius cover, you know, because I showed Patterson laying dead in the middle of a ring. Mm. I was saying he's he's a dead man. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it came out and everybody in America laughed at it. The sports writers laughed at it. And a week later they said, "Fuck!" It's like that's what happened. You know, yeah. only, I, only I used imagery where if you're if you're a loser, people leave you for dead. Yeah. You know, which is a metaphor for life and a metaphor for boxing. Anyway. So I mean, so I was, doing the coverage was exciting because I, I chronicled in my way those ten, those nine years or so, and I was ahead of them. I mean, I mean, I did a cover of the 100 GI killed in, G, in Vietnam. Yeah. I am the 100th GI killed in Vietnam. Merry Christmas. I did a cover like that. One hundredth. Yeah. You know, Fifty-eight thousand guys died, got killed after that. Um, you know, when I did the uh, Ali at Saint Sebastian, everybody in America hated Ali. Mm. Everybody hated him because he became he he, he went from he, he gave up Christianity to be a Muslim. Uh, you know, he uh, he uh, he's a bit of black a, a, kid, a, a young black kid with a big mouth. Mm. Uh, strike two, strike three, and he, and he was a traitor to his country. He wouldn't fight in the in the stupid war. You know, when I did Ali at Saint Sebastian, that stunned the country. Yeah. And people looked at it and said, "Is he a martyr? Is he?" And people started to realize, "Hey, whoa, maybe he was is a great man." You know, so, so there was a lot. So when you say, "What am I proud of?" I'm, I'm proud of a, a lot of stuff. You know. I think my favorite thing that you've been involved in was you you changed the world in a little way and so uh, maybe maybe in quite a big way with uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter when you when you managed to lead to some action that led to his release and, and your thinking there was so much bigger than just advertising and um, yeah. for, for listeners who don't know the story would you be able to give a little bit of uh, sort of background to that well, I, I, I've always been pissed at uh, racial prejudice or any kind of prejudice. I, I, at bullies, I, I always hated cops. I always, I mean, I, you know, I hated the army. I hated the. Uh, um, I don't know how I got out of the army alive. You know, I swear to God. You know, I, I got out of PFC. You know, I mean, I was a, I was a sergeant twice in Korea. Came home from PFC. Oh. <laughs> my wife would look at my letters, and in the corner she'd look to see what my rank was. You know, busted. <laughs> yeah, no. So, um, and uh, and I'm, and I'm a big fight fan, and uh, I, I grew up in a racist Irish neighborhood, which is re which is redundant in that back then. I mean, every I mean, I was uh, considered like a black kid. My neighborhood being a Greek, you know. Uh, had 50 fist fights with Irish kids. They when they said uh, uh, when they when they said a, a grease ball, drop everything, 
just punching. I'm just coming punching. I, you know, um, so I did. Um, and my father was a my father. My father hired a black, a young black man to, to, to drive a delivery truck in the summer, in the winters, and, and and people came in from the neighborhood. Priests came in and said, "We don't want niggers working in our neighborhood." It was Irish neighborhood. My father told him, he's a good young boy, hard worker, has a family, he's gonna work here. You know, I, was, I, I had that kind of a um, influence from my father. Um, when, I was, when I was in the army, I went to Jim Co. South. Um, the first day of roll call, Jackson, right here. You know, you know, Long Street, right here. What do you call it? Right here. Lois, yo. <laughs> Major comes up afterwards. Say, What's with the yo, soldier? And you're sudden. I said, uh, vocal. He said, uh, What's with the yo? I said, Well, sudden boys say right here, and I'm from New York. So I say, Yo. And he leans in, almost head bumps me, and he says, Oh, another New York Jew fag nigger lover. And I said, go fuck yourself, sir. And I did 14 weeks company punishment. <laughs> I mean, after, you know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, you had to go, then do six hours in cleaning pits and stuff, and they gave you two hours to sleep to break you, man. Right? 14 weeks company punishment, and then I went to Korea. Mm. You know, I mean, so that kind of stuff, I was always, and I was the Jim Crow South. That was when they were still hanging black guys, you know, and have colored drinkers. So uh, a thing like the the Carter thing, um, you know, when you read a book, and I say this guy's this guy's getting screwed. Hey, I'm an advertising guy. Let me let me let me try to get out. Let me let me see if I can get him out of prison. So I started with that little ad, you know. This, that ran at the Times, page two. I went to the Times and spent three days trying to convince them to let me run the ad, period. An ad from a, from a convicted killer with a 300 year sentence saying that you're innocent. I had to convince the Times to, to run the ad. Then when I got to convince them, and I, don't, I got on page two in the news section, and then I went to meet Carter. I met him in prison. And uh, told him what I wanted to do. He thought I was crazy. What, what, what good is that going to do? I said, it, it, the shit will hit the fan. It'll be national news. That, and I'll, I'm going to get pick up the phone, get friends of mine to pick up the phone, and we'll, we'll get like maybe 50, 50, 60, 70 people on a committee, important people, and then we'll have a full fledged movement. He said, thought I was crazy. And I and I I did. I got my. I called up Muhammad Ali first to be my my chairman. He said, George, you, you think he's innocent? I said, Yeah, I know he's innocent. Listen, let let me talk to your lawyer, and I'll get your lawyer to talk to their lawyer. And he said, No, no, I trust you. Whatever you say, you know. So I had Ali, so I could pick up the phone. And I could get call Burt Reynolds and say, uh, Muhammad's going to be our chairman. He said, I'm on. I'm here. Before you knew what I had full-fledged movement, you know. But um, 
and it was exciting, and uh, I lost three accounts because of it. Wow. I stopped working for the nigger. Cutty Sock was one of them. Yes. And I, I, I almost doubled their business, and he calls me and he said, uh, and, and it was getting a lot of publicity, and there were a lot of there was a lot of right wing press talking about talking about me, you know. Walking there, he wanted to see me. I go to my car, and he was, he, he was the new president of Cutty Sock. The guy before was great. He said, uh, walked in the room. He said, uh, without saying hello, he said. Uh, uh, Lois, stop working for the nigger. Uh, and uh, I said, well, Ed, I got keep working for him because he's innocent and I'm going to work for him as hard as I can. I said, you don't understand what I just said. I said, stop working for the nigger or else. And I said, I'm going to keep working for him. And he said, if you walk out the door, that's the, end of the, that's the end of it for you. And I walked out, and the next morning I got a letter from their lawyer. I was fired. Six million dollar account, big account back then. And, yeah, anyway, that's another thing. That's another thing about when I say courage. I think you have to have, to have courage about your work and courage about eating shit. Mm. I think I got I got well, lesson that says if it if it looks like shit and it smells like shit and it tastes like shit, it's shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know when you're eating shit. Yeah. You know sometimes in your life something's happening to you and you say, you know what? I think I'm eating shit because it sure looks like shit <laughs> and it sure tastes like you know smells like shit and it and it, and it tastes like shit. And I, it's shit, so go fuck yourself, you know. Yeah. You know, <laughs> part of uh, living, uh, it's part of living a, uh, I call it a manly life, although mm. I don't mean, uh, I don't mean macho man, I don't mean that the woman can't, you know, there's some great, great woman in this world, but I, I, I still call it a manly thing to do, you know, you know, man, man up, you know. Yeah. And what part of being a man is being a being a gentleman with, with the right people. There's a lot of people you know who are terrific with people above them, and and sweet. And under them, they just rough them up. You know, whether it's a delivery boy or whether it's a, you know, with somebody in. A, you know, in, 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 you know, who brings them the mail in what do you call it, or, or restaurants or, in, you know, you know I, oh, I hate that kind of stuff. Mm. You know, I mean, I think of being, uh, being warm with people uh, and uh, that's, not, that's why I love playing ball so much. I'm playing with, mostly with, with working class guys or, mm. I mean, I, I like, being with young guys who, uh, who, uh, you know, who uh, work hard for a living and uh, have troubles with their marriages when they're young, and I, and I teach them. I mentor them. I said, God, I treat your wife the right way, you you, you cocksucker. Don't understand that, you know, you know, treat her right. You know. Like you've, uh, you've been married for over sixty years as well. Yeah, we're married uh, 
60 years in, uh, in September. That's the smartest thing I ever did. I mean, you gotta understand, I had to uh, elope to get married because my a Greek kid not marrying a, not marrying a Greek girl, uh, uh, not marrying a Greek girl was uh, unheard of then. So I, we eloped, Yeah. you know. And how did your parents take it after you did that? Well, uh, my sister's almost, my sister had, both their moms had a heart attack. Uh, that my mother and father had gone to Greece. And that's when I said to my to Rosie, I said, uh, "This is the time. Got to give. This is time to do it." We had to go to Baltimore because I was underage. <laughs> you had to be 21 to marry to, uh, in New York to get married, uh, or you could uh, marry earlier, but you had to you have your parents' permission. Yeah. So I did it. Went to visit my sisters, who were taking care of flowers. Walked in. Yeah, five days later, you know, I was talking in Greek. Where have you been? I said I got married. My sister, big sister, fainted. <laughs> she was out for ten minutes. My other sister comes out to the back. What happened? I said, my told I rule. I got sister. I got married. What? Anyway, oh, oh. everybody, calm down. They said, you're going to kill your mother. Your mother's going to kill. My mother comes back. I meet her at the boat. You know, without my wife. I said, don't worry, I'll sit down, I'll, talk, I'll tell mom and papa, and come, I'll come up to the Bronx, and I'll explain it all, and the next day I'll bring my wife to meet everybody. So I, my other sister next to me, we get in the car, my mother looks at me and says in Greek, you got married, didn't you? You, know, you got married, didn't you? I said, yeah, mom. When are you gonna bring your wife? I said, tomorrow. She said, okay. Wonderful. <laughs> And before that, she was gonna, you know, she was talking suicide if I married her, somebody, you know, you know, no, but you know, she had to do what she had to do, you know, good mom and my, you know, good, you know, when they love you, they love you, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. Going back to the uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter story, um, where you you had lost several accounts because of doing that, oh, yeah. um, but you also, you are probably responsible for uh, Bob Dylan having written the song about it, Hurricane. Yeah, yeah. well, I um, uh, got to, uh, um, there was a friend, I, I knew a guy by the name of, uh, of Larry Sloman, and uh, we call him Ratso Sloman, he's a good, terrific writer. And he was ha- he was covering a, a, a Dylan's a Rolling Thunder review, and uh, I talked to him about Carter, and uh, and he got you know good very good. I said I want to get to Dylan, good I t- kind of guy that would understand you know a black guy getting screwed like that, and uh, he got me to Dylan, sent sent them the book. I brought him out to uh, uh, the, the prison to meet. The, uh, uh, whenever I went to prison, whenever I went to prison, I go when I went every week for you know the, the, the guards would rattle. They'd take the stick and rattle the bars. That meant Lois was there. <laughs> oh boy, you know they would strip search me every time. Oh I had to take my clothes off. Yeah, and I'd take my clothes off and I'd say, suck my dick while you're out, you cocksuckers. I mean, I, I mean, these they just wanted to kill me, you know, they got their sticks, you know. 
strip. Okay, now suck my dick. <laughs> I, I said it every time, every time I went, that was like 50 times, I said, now suck my dick. You know? <laughs> uh, but anyway, he was, and then, he had, a, I lost track of him for a couple of weeks with no, no answer from him. And I, and I, it's like there's a picture, I got a picture in the, one of my books, where I went up with a friend of mine, a guy, a Greek friend of mine. And we went to one, up towards one of his gigs, I think it was in Captain Connecticut, and after the gig, or in the middle, after it, there's pictures of uh, Ken Regan, I don't know if you know Ken Regan, the photographer, he has a lot of, thousands of pictures of a lot of rock stars. There's a picture of me and, me and my friend, mm -hmm. you know, you know Bob here sitting like the white face with the feather in the hat, and we're like. <laughs> anyway, we convinced him. I, I think convinced him to write a song. He said he'd write a song, and then I said, and you never know, Bobby. After that, maybe even a concert. But yeah. we'll, we'll get to that. He not only did a concert at the prison, at, in, in, in the at radio, at the National Guard, he did a concert at, in prison. Don't ask me how I got that. Yeah. It involves another strip search. I mean, you know. <laughs> so that's what, what happened is, that was 75. In 82, when I had just done I Want My MTV, and, I went, and MTV was a big success finally, um, uh, Bill Graham comes to me. Bill Graham was a big rock producer, but he died very, very young. People don't know him now. He was, he was a monster. It was great. And said, George, I'm trying to get fucking Dylan to do a video. He hates the whole idea of videos. He thinks it's blah, 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 whatever. He had a million. Uh, if Will you do a video for him? If I ask him and I say you will do it, he might do it. So will you do it if I, and I said, absolutely, I owe him, I owe him plenty. And he did. And, um, but still hating the idea of doing a video. Yeah. You know, you know. And, um, so he went to Dylan, Dylan said, uh, okay, if it's George, or may, maybe, something like that. They send me the infidels with the tape. Anyway, I'm listening to the music, Joe commands. Every every line is is a biblical reference of some kind. A, every line has something to do with the culture. I don't know if you ever, you ever see yeah, it. I mean, every goddamn line is like, whoa. Uh, wow, what a, well, I could do that, I could do this, I could do that, I could do whatever, I could do Hitler, I could do dissolving into the, the you know, the, the, into the atom bomb, I could, I could do you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, wow, 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 wow. So I, I, I figure out all the visuals and, and I put it, and I have a big, big, big long room, dark room, you know, with the television room, I cork walls and I put the, a storyboard, you know, each each visual was like with the type set on it because I put the type right on the mm. all around the room and it would go on and I'm explaining to Bob what I'm doing I got what he called and one by one I explained 
I read the line and the visual I'm going to use, and I go to about 20 of them, 30 of them, and, and, and Bill, Bill Graham was in the corner of the room, but it was like, the, uh, you remember the scene in uh, Third Man, in the Third Man where Harry Lyme is in the darkness and the light hits him all of a sudden? Yeah. You know, I don't know if you remember that scene. And uh, he was sitting in the corner there, and he, and, 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 and Bob looked sitting there listening to me, walking around the room. And he, then at one point, and I think I went to a quarter, and he said, you know, George, I had a lot of those images in my head when I wrote the words. Wow. He said, and, and, I, and I glanced back at Bill Graham, who then sticks his face in the light, and Bill Graham went like this. <laughs> you know, Bob was saying, that's the, that's it. That's what I must have had in my head. I mean, it was a little bit like yeah. the, my creation of the big idea. Where did I get an idea from? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I think he kind of meant it, you know? Yeah. I mean, when he said, you know, uh, I explained each visual, you know, like I read the line, I said, well, that's, a, that's not just a painting of, juror, uh, of Christ, but that's Jura's self-image. Christ looking like himself, because he was saying that man is created of what it would go down. It's like, yeah, you know. Anyway, so uh, I think I think for listeners, you better explain your hand gesture, the the international dice shaking motion. <laughs> but anyway, Kurt Loda, you know the uh, the uh, the great critic, rock critic, and I think he's still writing for. Stone. He called about a, two years ago. He called it. He's, it's still the best music video ever done. He said, you know, because it's a, it's an important video. I think, you know. I mean, you, you have to watch it several times to be able to pick everything up. Yeah, That's the great I, thing about I, it. I, Jesus, somebody at the uh, somebody at the museum of the moving image or something did a big thing talking about me and Dylan. They got did a whole complicated thing but there's there's a there's a Dylan video a Dylan fan club they're insane these guys they got me to they, they begged me to come to new school I think it was Would to give a lecture to get yeah, to do a lecture <laughs> on the Jokerman video yeah. they knew the video better than I knew it. Wow. They had it, they knew every image, they had it analyzed, they studied it, they said, no, no, we spent a couple of years work, uh, studying that. These crazy motherfuckers, <laughs> they do every, and they did it, they met the guy that did it, they, they were like, oh, you know, how, how was Bob to work with? I said, well, he's a pain in the ass. Oh, really? Yeah, I said, oh yeah. When I was dumping it, I mean, when I was, uh, when he was, lip-syncing it, mm. lip-syncing to his track. Mm. He was all over the place. And I said, hey, Bobby, we're gonna, we'll stay here till four in the fucking morning. You gotta lip-sync it. You gotta concentrate. <laughs> he said, He said, yeah, the camera's too far away. Because you know, I had a... Yeah. I said, Bob, when you sing at a fucking concert, people are far away. The fuck are you talking about? You know what I mean? You concentrate, Bob. I ain't walking out of here until you do it right. You know? yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm directing a job. I gotta get, I gotta get the job. You know what I mean? So afterward, he, 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 he was doing it. He did an interview with somebody, and he said, uh, 
Oh, is that a what a great video? This and this and this. And the the hoodie call saying, right? Oh, it's, it's this and he said, yeah. He said, but you know, uh, you know, but it took a long time for it to lip sync it, you know. And he said something about, you know, Lois is kind of tough or something like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, know, you got to get. I ain't leaving here till it's right. You know what I mean? <laughs> I want to round off with two. Questions here. Yeah, because I really should go pretty soon. All right. <laughs> I, I, I got to get home and take a shower. We're going to a, a Nick game tonight. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see if you can do these one quickly. Then there's one from, um, let's see, from uh, Dave Trott and his, his daughter Jade. Um, they've asked which book has changed the way you thought the most. Could you say the, say the first word? Which book? Or which book? Book. Yeah, sorry, it's my strange Scottish accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you guys don't talk English. <laughs> I won't try with my I, terrible I, American I accent. Talk English. You got that motherfucker? <laughs> um, well, well, uh, in design now. You, uh, I think just in general, it could be a philosophy book, it could be an art book. Oh, I think. Uh, one of them that really stunned me is uh, the report the report to Greco by Cousin Zykes. Mm-hmm. Um Basically, he's reporting to uh, El Greco, who was stuck, was a Greek painter. But they called him the Greek. You know, forgot his, forgot his name. Isn't that funny? <laughs> um, and he re- and he's reporting to his ancestors about what kind of life he's lived. Yeah. That's the killer. Um, uh, I think the Iliad, the Iliad. I, I read, I've, I've read the Iliad about two thousand times. Oh, every, every translation, yeah. every translation, and it keeps getting weirder and weirder. You know, I like the old ones. Um, um, uh, the book that stunned me when I was a kid was Thoughts and Design by by Paul Rand. Mm. I mean, it's tatted, you know, it's the edge of it is tatted, I still have it, you know, and um, one of the tools of my life was when I gave it to Paul, when he came to, the first time he came to my house, I gave it to Paul, and he said, what is this? And I said, that's my original book. Don't make fun of it, fun face, you know. I, <laughs> I, uh, we, we became great friends. One of the great things about Paul Red, I said, can't, Cantankerous. I mean, really. He uh, whenever he got an award from the from 1970 on, whenever he got any kind of award, he wanted me to be the presenter. Right. They'd say, "Well, who should present you?" He said, "Get Lois. He's the only one who fucking under. He's the only one I, I fucking trust, or something like that." So this was this was one day at the, at the type directors club, and the type directors club. Type directors aren't designers. The type directors, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, I mean, ad agencies have type directors. What the fuck are you talking about? Art director should do his own type. But anyway, so, so he never respected him that much. But anyway, there's 600 people in a in a in a dinner. And I get up and I give this terrific talk. In fact, I I I I, I kind of did an in, uh, introduction to a. Steve Heller's book on Rand, which is a great book, and I, 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 kind of what I said at the, this, this thing. Anyway, so I give this talk, uh, Paul Rand, and 500 guys get up, and 
cheer and guys and the only men. You know, no, no woman art, no woman type directed. And they cheer and they cheer and they cheer. And, and, and Paul's standing next to me. And they cheer and they cheer and they won't stop it. And I kind of look down at Paul because this is kind of moving, you know what I mean? I look down to see if there might be a tear in his eye. And I, he had a funny look on his face and he kind of leans into me and he says, George, the only people in this room that aren't assholes are you and me. <laughs> <laughs> That's poor Red. Yeah. That was poor Red. I love the motherfucker. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, like, he told it like it is, you know. And he wouldn't he would have said that about a normal group of designers, but he was talking about guys he didn't respect. Yeah. You know, because they typed, what do you mean you're a type director, you know? Yeah. <laughs> And I've got a final question here, which is from Billy Mahwini. Um And his question is, what changes do you foresee in the advertising industry coming up now? I mean, I would hope the change would be... Uh, I mean, I don't... What you're looking for... I mean, the only way I know how to create a new creative evolution is for... Two, one, two, or three agencies come along that that not only talk the talk, you know, but walk the walk and do really great work. Which a lot of there are a lot of young agencies and you hear about, and they they usually just do, do work a lot in you know with websites, et cetera, And then you look at their websites, and they look like everybody else's websites. And and of course, everybody's everybody all all the all editorial pages are. are, are are starting to look like web pages. Unfortunately, there's a lot of terrific designers out there that are being forced into not only doing terrible covers, which they have been doing for years and years and years, because of the the the, you know, the, the, the flavor of the month actor with 12 blurbs all over the all over the, all over the front page, but also filling their pages with stuff. Mm. I mean, there's no fashion thing called white space, <laughs> you know. Uh, you can't find white space in any magazines anymore. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And I'm talking about a lot of good designers where you look at their magazines and you say, Jesus Christ, give me some air, fellas. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and because what they're doing, everybody's doing web pages. Everybody's an art director, everybody's a designer, everybody's doing web pages. They organize a web page. And, and what magazines are now beginning to look like is web page after web page the graphic punch is almost non-existent and there's a lot of talent in, in, in publication designers I mean there really is but somehow I think they're, they're being wedged into a situation where, it, where it's gone beyond being told what the cover's going to be but, but filling every square inch with available and some great editors are saying there are a lot of great editors today, but they're not great editors who uh, who uh, understand visual imagery. Mm. You know, unfortunately, um, Harold Hayes understood it because he just saw it and said, "And said go." Yeah. He didn't know. He didn't understand creating visual imagery. Otherwise, he would have somehow gotten it. But when I did the covers, he looked at it and he said, "Holy shit." That's it. Yeah. That's it. You know, I, I, I would do covers for him and send it to him, and I'd say, uh, 
with a note that said, Harold, this one's going to really get us into trouble. And he would call me up and he would say, yeah, yeah, trouble. You know, Sonny listening to Santa Claus. We're pissing off every fucking person in America. George, thank you so much. You've been ridiculously generous with your time. I've got lots of stuff here, but I've still got loads I want to ask you. But we'll leave it there. And uh, you've got apple pie, which uh, is probably just about ready for you just now. <laughs> Thanks, David. You, uh, you know, if, when you learn the language, let's talk again. <laughs> well, that's it. That's the last you'll be hearing from Mr. Lewis for a while. But we've got lots more legends already in the bag, ready to assault your ear holes. So, have you rated the podcast yet? Have you left a gushing review? If not, do it now. Go on. It makes it all worthwhile for me if you do. And in fact, here's a promise for you. If you leave a review on the iTunes site, I will think positive, life-affirming thoughts about you for at least eight seconds. Not bad, eh? And if you leave a particularly brilliant review, I'll mention you in the podcast. But go on, click on the screen right now and go and tell the world about your favouritest podcast. Adieu, mon cher. Le podcast est terminé. <laughs> <laughs>